0: Sometimes you just get involved. <laughs> Did you hear any of that? <laughs> they didn't, <laughs> All right? Luke 22, verses 1 through 23, as she'll stand as I read the Word of God. With my mic on. The feast of unleavened bread was drew near, which is called Passover, and the chief priests and the scribes sought how they might kill him, for they feared the people. Then Satan entered Judas, named Iscariot, who was numbered among the twelve. And so he went his way and conferred with the chief priests and captains how he might betray him to them. And they were glad and agreed to give him money. And so he promised and sought opportunity to betray him to them in the absence of the multitude. Then came the day of unleavened bread when the passover must be killed and he sent Peter and John saying, "Go and prepare the passover for us that we may eat." And so they said to him, "Where do you want us to prepare?" And he said to them, "Behold, when you have entered the city, a man will meet you carrying a pitcher of water. Follow him into the house where which he enters." And then he will say to the master of the house, The teacher says to you, Where is the guest room where I may eat the Passover with my disciples? Then he will show you a large furnished upper room, and there make ready. And so they went and found it just as he had said to them, and they prepared the Passover. And when the hour had come, he sat down and the twelve apostles with him. Then he said to them, with fervent desire, I have desired to eat this Passover with you before I suffer. For I say to you, I will no longer eat of it until it is fulfilled in the kingdom of God. And he took the cup, and he gave thanks, and said, Take this, and divide it among yourselves. For I say to you, I will not drink of the fruit of the vine until the kingdom of God comes. And he took the bread, and gave thanks, and broke it, and gave it to them, saying, This is my body, which is broken, given for you, And do this in remembrance of me. Likewise, he took the cup after supper, saying, This is the cup of the new covenant in my blood, which is shed for you. Behold, the hand of my betrayer is with me on the table. And truly the Son of Man goes as it has been determined. But woe to that man by whom he is betrayed. And Then they begin to question among themselves which of them it was who would do this thing. He may be seated. The word of God. Determined by God, the sovereignty of God is a powerful subject. A lot of discussion goes on uh, among believers about the sovereignty of God. And yes, he creates, he rules, he delegates authority. We know that he raises up kings and leaders and he puts kings and leaders down. He has the absolute right to do according to all of his good pleasure with his creation he's never wrong he never makes a mistake he never has a misstep and he determines the destiny of all of his creation which he exists separate from and this is one of the many mysteries that we consider uh, about God one of them uh, the mystery of him stepping into this time continuum and becoming one of us, the God-man, and yet still maintaining his nature and his character, his deity didn't change him. He became one of us. It was the only way that he could pay the debt that was incurred by man's rebellion in the garden, and he paid that debt in full. It had to be paid. He became the perfect sacrifice, as we've read here, on the behalf of all of mankind. It was the only way God could maintain and uphold his perfect nature because the Bible tells us that the foundation of his throne is righteousness and justice. How can a holy God forgive sinful man? How is that just? How can he let sinful man off the hook? How can he declare a sinful man righteous? That would be unrighteous. That would be unjust. There was only one solution. He himself would become the debt payer. He would be the one who would pay that debt and release us from our debt and our guilt. The marvel of it all. And you know what's amazing about all the mysteries of God? He never violates the free will of man. Now you think about that for a moment of all the free will beings that were created, all the angels who are without number, and all of humanity and that being without number. And God has a plan and a purpose. And some of those free moral agents rebelled. And some were born into rebellion, such as you and I. With all that free will and rebellion against him, to ultimately fulfill his plan without ever once violating any one of those beings, any one of those creatures that he created. Not once, ever, violating their free will. That, my friend, is a mighty God. That is an all-knowing, all-powerful God, and he's the one we serve. What we are looking at is three basic movements here this morning in our passage that we've read. Uh, the scheme to murder Jesus, uh, the day of uh, Passover and unleavened bread, which we'll explain a little bit here, and, of course, then uh, the Last Supper. Uh, In verses 1 through 6, we have this scheme coming about. You can also read about this in the parallel Gospels if you want. It would be Matthew 26, if you're taking notes, 2 through 5, as well as uh, verses 14 through 16 there in Matthew 26. Mark 14, verses 1 and 2. 10 through 11 and then John's gospel chapter 11 47 through 53 and then also John 13:2 it's there collaborating evidence from all three of all four of the gospels here And so this is amazing how Jesus says so many different things and then he goes on to just simply illustrate them or the very circumstances that they're about happen to illustrate. John made an incredible, insightful, truthful statement, unfortunately, in John 1, 11 and 12, where he says, He came to his own, and his own did not receive him. But as many as received him, to them he gave the right to become the children of God. To those who believe on his name, you have the right You have the authority. Having received Jesus, you have the right to become a son of God. That is an incredible statement that we can just read through and just kind of, wow! isn't that just nice? Isn't that sweet? Yeah, that's more than sweet. Because when you understand the depth of the sons of God, whenever that's used in the scripture, it is used for a direct creation of God. Bene Elohim in the Hebrew is sons of God. And the angels were a direct creation of God. Each and every one were an individual creation of God. Uh, not like man who was were propagated through uh, men and women and down through the history. So it's, it's, not, it's indirect. Adam was the son of God because God took some dirt and he formed it, and then he breathed into it. He was the direct creation of God. Sons of God, direct creations of God. What's marvelous is what Paul, and the truth that Paul stated to the Corinthians. You are a new creation in Christ. You are a direct creation of God. You are now a daughter of God. You are now a son of God, a direct creation. Your new man wasn't brought forth by the will of the flesh, but by the will of God. Isn't that a wonderful thought? To know that you are a direct creation. You're a spirit man that never sins. Your spirit man never sins. It's born after the seed of God. It cannot, First John. So the, what's the issue with sin? Because I got problems, bro. Right? <laughs> That's your flesh. You're dragging around a dead man with you. Unfortunate as it may be. We have been given authority and power over that, as we'll see as we continue our study here. But the Feast of Unleavened Bread, which is uh, the first day, uh, was known as Passover, which is one day they would kill. It must be killed on the first day. And so that was the month of Nisan, and the 14th, that Passover lamb would be killed. And then the following day, in the remaining seven days, uh, 15 through 21, would be the Feast of Unleavened Bread. During that whole week, no leaven, nothing of yeast could be in, in any of the foods that were partaken of. That was set forth uh, by Moses. But here we see the, the chief priest, the establishment, uh, is out to get Jesus and they're going to get him. They've been looking for this opportunity to take him by force. And um, Jesus, uh, according to John's gospel, had raised Lazarus from the dead, and then the Jews that were present there went and <laughs> to the establishment. Hey, do you know what Jesus did? This guy was dead for four days, and, and he raised him from the dead. Just unbelievable. He's got to be the Messiah. He's just got to be. Ah! Sent him over the edge. You know, you can read about this in John 11. I just, it lets you into the mind and the heart of these demon-possessed leaders. I mean, it, they're accusing a Jesus of being demon-possessed, but really, in reality, it, they were. They were in it for the money, for the power and control over the people. They were not sincere followers of God. Look, if Jesus continues in his ministry, everyone's going to believe like that was a bad thing, <laughs> Right? Satan just twists things. And besides that, we'd lose our job. Do you realize how much of a gravy train we're on here? The money that we're making, we can't have that guy messing up our scheme, or taking away our jobs, our place. And so you can read about that. That's quite embellished and paraphrased, but you get the idea. And so as we've read Judas goes to them, and I'll rat him out for you. What are you gonna pay me? And I can do it without there being a ruckus because that was the thing they were. You read that in John. Well, let's just turn there. It's kind of cool. I just you can pick it up in verse forty-five. We won't cover all the verses for the sake of John eleven. John 11 and 45 is where it starts, but we won't cover it all. See In verse 47, they, the chief priests, after hearing that Jesus had raised Melazarus, they gathered together in council. And what do we, shall we do? For this man works many signs. If we let him alone like this, everyone will believe in him. And the Romans will come and take away Both our place and our nation. And of course, then um, Caiaphas has the prophecy and says, That's not going to happen. Somebody's going to die. And then this is verse 55 and the Passover, the Jews was near, and many of them went out from the country to Jerusalem uh, before the Passover to purify themselves. And they sought Jesus and spoke among themselves as they stood in the temple What do you think? Will he not come to the feast? Now both the chief priests and the Pharisees had given a command that if anyone knew where he was, that they should report it, that they might seize him. So they're, they're just waiting and watching for this to, to come down. And then there's that part where they make it up from their coming from Galilee, remember that whole procession, and then he heals Lazarus, and then he leaves the area of Bethany for a bit until the final week, and then we have the triumphant entry. So you kind of can put the pieces together when you read... All the Gospels, which is, I find, as you know, very exciting. Now the scribes here, uh, going back to our passage, uh, these are the guys who studied the law. Most of them were of the priestly line. And they were, they were like lawyers. They studied uh, the Scriptures and, uh, and interpreted it for the people. And, and these would have been the guys that followed Jesus around with their pencil and paper, you know, waiting for... Jesus to misstep, to violate the law in some way so that they could bring accusation against him, just continually judging and criticizing Jesus. There are those that get caught up in legalism, that get caught up in the law, because see, the law is something you can measure. And there are people who, who uh, measure their spirituality by keeping the law, and they want to measure your spirituality by how you keep the law. And so there's this mentality of, of watching and criticizing and judging. And what does the Bible say about you and I judging others? If you are a judge of your brother, you, know, you became a judge of the law. And if you are a judge of the law, then you are no longer a doer of the law. You're no longer a servant, you've become a judge. And God didn't call you and I to be judges. There's only one lawgiver. There's only one judge. And so this is uh, what describes that trap that they fell in. They were literally the hounds of Satan, if you will, who were continually doing this and looking to bring down Jesus and his disciples. But where did this all come from? They come from the adversary. It came from Satan. It says uh, in our passage here that, that... satan entered judas i find that verse 3 satan entered judas demon possession that's an interesting thing entering someone to control someone there enough my understanding is correct not only does god not violate our free will neither does he allow the dark side Fallen angels or demons they 're not the same he doesn 't allow those entities to violate our free will. There must be an opening there must be a, a surrender, a door, an opening for Satan to enter and to come in. so what happened here did did this did he come and go because we read in uh, John's gospel that when they were there in the upper room that Satan entered. Jesus, Satan entered Judas there. So did he? Does Satan have the ability when he possesses someone to come and go at will, or to take control of someone at will? You know, those are sort of mysterious things. I don't necessarily have the answer to that. It's a wonderment. But where I think the opening came is as they were. There in Bethany, this is chapter 11 in John's Gospel, and Mary gets up and takes a pound of ointment, nerd, and breaks the flask and puts it on Jesus' head and his feet and just anoints Jesus. And Judas loses it. This could have been sold for 300 denarii and given to the poor. And as the scripture says, not because he cared for the poor, but because he was a thief and he had the money bag and he would help himself with what was in there. You see, Jesus then reproved them, particularly Judas, for his judgmental, hypocritical statement. And this is what sent Judas, I believe, over the edge. This is when he went out and found the chief priests and the captains. This is, hey, look. Now, why would Judas be living a lie? Because he has been following Jesus, but it doesn't appear that he really believes because he's living in sin. He's got the bag, and he's living out of the bag. Why was he so angry? Why was he so upset? He'd been pilfering from the bag. Did he get himself into some financial difficulty? You know, he's losing money on the stock market, and he had to pay the, you know, the the go-between a little bit to catch back up, and he was in a financial bind. Who knows? We just know that he was greedy for someone to do that. So not being able to take that oil, sell it, and put another 300 in there, that would have been great, you know. We don't really understand what was going on in his heart and mind completely, but The enemy will use the attitudes of the flesh. It is through the flesh, through our fallen nature, that these attacks come. This is the avenue by which Satan enters. When we live in sin, we're not taking uh, the proper measures to deal with sin in our lives, then this can be a point where the enemy can make entrance and, and influence us and have us to do things that are, uh, not godly and not good. This should really come as a sober warning to people who are living in unrepentant sin because what does sin do to the human heart? Unfortunately, guilt. It hardens the heart. That guilt and shame was not something that the human spirit was ever meant to experience in our original form, but that's what happens when we rebelled. Jesus shamed him by confronting him with the truth. He was embarrassed, no doubt. And so he acted out of anger, in my opinion, when he went to the chief priest and the captains there. I think there's a process that Satan uses to trap people uh, into doing his bidding. And this isn't really um, maybe exactly how it happens, but there are definitely some of this that does definitely occur. It's, as I've already mentioned, what, the first one is living in unrepentant sin. You're just flesh waiting for the lion to come and devour it, as, as it were. And that sin hardens the heart. We know that. Guilt and anger are the expression of a hardened heart. People get mad, they get upset. It begins to rule their heart, as subtle as it may be. And then they begin to act out in anger in retributive ways as I think that he was in spite trying to get back at Jesus. And then there's just simply the yielding to that influence. It feels good to get back at him, you know. Vengeance is mine. I will repay, saith me, you know, (laughs) type of thing. And so Satan enters... In reality, he enters through rebellion. And again, this should be a warning for those who may be unwilling to repent from their sin and turn to God for help. Because once you harden your heart, it becomes more difficult to control yourself. He'll begin to do things you never dreamed or thought you would say and do because your heart has become hardened. These, there are, I am convinced there are certain doors that the human being should never open and if those doors are open and the enemy is allowed to come in through rebellion the damage can sometimes be irreversible not because God couldn't heal or, or forgive or cleanse or change or retransform, but, but the person doesn't believe that it can happen therefore they forsake their own mercy it opens the door to bondage now let's just see this illustrated in Cain's life. He had a time of worship. He brought his offering along with his brother Abel. Abel understood brokenness and confession that he was a sinner before God and so he wanted to be forgiven. Cain appears to be self-righteous, thought his offering that he brought was sufficient and just accept me the way I am type of thing. Well, seeing that Abel was happy and joyful in his relationship with Yahweh, And now Cain's upset because his offering wasn't accepted. And the Lord didn't let him hang in that. He understood exactly where Cain was at. And he comes to him as the Holy Spirit comes to you and I when we are in rebellion and when we are in sin. And he lovingly convicts us saying, you know, this isn't right. You really shouldn't be doing that. You need to get right with God. You need to make this right. He knows we get haunted by the hound of heaven, if you will. And the Lord instructed him on what was right and said, If you do the right right thing, you'll be accepted. Genesis 4, 6 and 7. And so the Lord said to Cain, Why are you angry? And why is your countenance fallen? If you do well, will you not be accepted? If you do not do well, sin lies at the door. Its desire is for you, but you should rule over it. Now, you have to remember that Genesis is a powerful book because within the book of Genesis is the law known as the law of first mention. When something is mentioned for the first time, it should be like, Hello, flashing red lights, pay attention, this is important. So what do we learn from this passage here? We can control ourselves. We can say no to sin. We don't have, we're not victims here necessarily, right? We can deal with this. We don't have to blame it on somebody else. We, have to, we can take full responsibility. We can take full control and no, I'm not doing what's wrong. I'm going to do what's right. It's not always easy. It fights against the pride. See, this hardened heart of his metastasized into all aspects of his thinking and his heart and so much so that he was so jealous and angry with his brother that he murdered him. And that led to another confrontation from the Lord. Where's your brother? Am I my brother's keeper? Yes, you are, by the way. His blood cries out from the earth. It's like one of the prayers this morning. The blood of these aborted children, these murdered children cries out. You think our land is defiled. It is unclean. It will, what did the unclean land of the, of the, that God had dedicated and given to his people, when they had flooded it with murderous blood and idolatry, it vomited them out. That's why the previous nations that were there were removed for their wickedness. The land could no longer tolerate. There comes a time when our country and our land will no longer tolerate what we're doing. It will vomit us out as a culture. It happened to the previous culture, and the previous culture, it happens to corrupted people because this is what hardened hearts do. And it causes us to do what Cain does. If we do not deal with sin, we let it metastasize and grow and affect the rest of our lives, we will run. That guilt will cause us to run from Yahweh, to run from God, from, run, from the, what would actually save us. We'll run from it. We'll become a wanderer, a vagabond, as the scripture says there in chapter 4. We won't find any peace. We'll not find a home, a place to rest. And so this is what was going on in the mind and heart of Judas I believe. I don't believe he was saved. He had no real faith. He heard the word of God. You think about all these sermons that we've read through the, in the gospels. He heard them. Probably many of them several times because Jesus would preach the same thing in various villages. It's not like he had to, you know, say, let's just go with this one again, you know, boom. You know, he just brought the kingdom of God. He preached the kingdom everywhere he went. And so no doubt Judas heard these. He heard the word of God. But like Israel, he did not mix it with faith. And if you can hear the word of God, you can be in the best you can listen to the best teaching online, you can just study the Bible all you want, but if you don't mix it with faith, what will happen? Nothing. It'll be of no profit. It must be mixed with faith. When you don't walk in faith and you don't apply the word of God, then you begin to live after the flesh, as Judas did, and he became the instrument of the adversary. Satan took advantage of his hard-heartedness. Oh, this is the guy I can use to get Jesus. Satan hates the Lord. I'm going to kill him. Who else was manifesting that hatred, murderous attitude? The establishment. Those who hate God want to kill God. They want nothing to do with God. Oh, I got him. Finally, I found one of the the disciples that I could use. And no doubt the the demonic dark world is rejoicing at the thought that they now have to have a, a tool they can use. Unfortunately for Judas, he would come to his senses and realize too late that he shouldn't have done what he had done. He will regret his actions. And you know what? Satan, the devil, also regrets this action. 1 Corinthians chapter 2, verse 6 through 10 tells the story of Satan's disappointment and anguish over his wrong move. 1 Corinthians 2, 6-10 However, we speak wisdom among those who are mature yet not the wisdom of this age nor the, of the rulers of this age who are coming to nothing but we speak the wisdom of God in a mystery the hidden wisdom which God ordained before the ages for our glory which none of the rulers of this age knew for had they known They would not have crucified the Lord of glory. Do you think he's talking about Caesar? The local government? Paul is referring to because he has an unseen realm mindset. He understands that we're not fighting against flesh and blood, literally. We are fighting against powers, rulers of the darkness, the principalities the fallen angels that rule over and bring tyrannical reigns through human men those guys behind the scenes the rulers of this age if satan would have just thought through wait no wait if i kill him that's going to make me a murderer but if i let him go then everybody's going to believe he's caught but he doesn't even think that way. He's so excited about the fact that he's trapped the Son of God and that he's going to have him crucified, that he's filled with glee. But he's blinded by his pride. And through his pride, he did become a murderer. And what, According to God's judicial court system in heaven, what is the punishment for murderers? It's the death sentence. That's why him and his angels now, they were just rebels prior to this, right? They went the next step too far. Now they're murderers. Now they're going to be prosecuted. Hell and the lake of fire are their eternal residence. But for you and I, eye has not seen, ear has not heard, nor has it entered in the heart of man the things that God has prepared for those who love him. But God has revealed them to us through His Spirit, which searches our heart. You can imagine the good things that God has in store for you. 7 through 13, we have the Days of Unleavened Bread. We'll we'll hustle through this to get to our last section here. We observe communion this morning. But the Day of Unleavened, Leavened bread, you know, the Passover, as we've said, the first day there must be killed. They just called it the Passover, which included the, uh, which is really known as the Feast of Unleavened Bread, but it's all kind of one package. Um, uh, We see here uh, the Lord sending Peter and John to prepare for the Passover. And just, I think there's there's something here that's applicable to us. If you allow me to spiritualize it a little bit here. We're all seeking the Lord. We seek the Lord daily. We want to know his plans and his purpose for our life. Should I do this? We always have so many choices to make. We have to exercise our free will. Sometimes we don't know how to exercise that. Do I go here? Do I go here? I don't know what to do. You ever have that going on in your life? Yes, no. Are you breathing? Yeah, okay. (laughs) I think this is a good way to pray. Verse 9 says, Where do you want us to prepare? Where do you want? Lord, where do you want me to go? You can add a lot of questions. The reporter questions are really good to ask the Lord, but a lot of conversation with God should involve questions. Because we don't know. We're asking questions. I know sometimes we as as a parent raising little little people wears you right out. Stop asking so many questions. You know what? God's not like that though. You can ask God as many times, as many questions as you want. And it's a good thing. Lord, what do you want? Lord, what do you want? What's, what's your heart? Where, in this case, where do you want us to prepare? And Jesus speaks to them. Go into the city, look for the man carrying a pitcher of water. Now normally this was a job, carrying the water was usually done by the ladies, and that's just kind of the way it was. So he's telling them, this is going to stick out a little bit to them. Look for the man carrying a water and following him, follow him into the house. And from that, I would like to say, when you're seeking the will of God, you should be paying attention to those who are already doing the work. People that are involved steadily doing the work of the Lord, Those that really are servant hearted. He's working, he's doing his job, he's about his business. That's the kind of people you want to look for when you're seeking the Lord for direction and purpose. Because they're walking in it. They've they've learned something because they're doing doing it. The other thing that it expresses about a servant is they're not beneath doing the menial tasks. Oh, I can't pick up trash. That's for that's for the ladies to clean up the mess. You know, do you consider certain tasks below yourself? Do you have a servant's heart? So these are these are the things that are important if we're going to discover the will of the Lord. You know, we see this throughout scripture, by the way. You know, when Jesus did his first miracle at Cana Galilee, it tells us that they were told to fill the Perkins with, you know, the jugs, the vasks, the loss, big ones, with water. Like, and then the the leaders. Wow, where'd you get this? This is really good. Well, usually you bring that out last, but this is whoa, this is really good stuff. Where'd you get this? What does it say? The servants knew. They knew. See, God has this affinity towards servants. He really likes servants because he's a servant and he lets servants know what's going on. He reveals his secrets and his purposes to people that are servants. Not the ones that want to lord and rule over but the ones who roll up their sleeves and get involved. So, bottom line, look for those who are already doing the will of God to get advice if you need it those who are presently and actively serving the Lord those who have a servant's heart notice that Peter and John didn't go check out if there were any sales in the local market because they knew that they were going to need supplies they went right away and did exactly what Jesus said go into the city and you will see you see, what, what does this infer? It infers timing. If they would have do, uh, been delayed, because delayed obedience is disobedience, right? You do know that, right? Delayed obedience is disobedience. God has synchronized things. God has timing. If they would have delayed and, well, we, we got time. Let's go get a cup of coffee. If they didn't obey and get the exchange of seeing the guy going into the house, they'd have missed it. You don't want to miss the opportunity. You want to to be obedient. You want to be sensitive to God's leading. Some other general thoughts along this is that, number one, we need to have a basic foundational conviction that Jesus wants to show us his will and that he will show us. When you pray and ask God for direction, you can trust and you need to believe he is going to show you. It might be a little bit intimidating. I don't want to go into the I don't want to go into the city. I mean, there's some bad guys in there, Lord. I mean, really? Well, I thought if they were intimidated, knowing Peter and John, pfft, where's that sword at anyway? You know. You know, I'm just saying. It can be intimidating sometimes when God speaks to you because it's always the will of God is always usually greater than our ability to do it. And that's good, because we don't want to be doing it, we want Him to be doing it, right? We gotta trust that Jesus will lead us to the right people. And he'll confirm which will confirm his word, right? He'll tell us what to say. This is what you say to the say teach the teacher says He'll he'll show us what to say, where to go, what to say. Boy, that's kind of relieving some pressure right away, isn't it? Where to go, what to say. That's Wow, thank Jesus, right? Results. We get answers to our prayer. We get results. So we're looking for the hand of God in all that we do. We're looking for confirmation along the way. Is this... Really, what God wants me to do. Lord, please, please show me, confirm this. I don't want to be out there on my own. And when all this happened, that for John and for Peter doing this, that was just as Jesus said. Wow, cool. And that's the, way it is, that's the way it's supposed to be for our lives. It would be just as, and that's what this says it was just as Jesus said it would be. We fulfill the plans and purposes of God. Isn't that great? A large furnished room was provided. God always provides everything that we need in the end. That's the point. Ending with the Lord's Supper here. I love this. It's probably one of my favorite passages when it comes to communion, right? And observing the Lord's Supper. He says, with, with fervent desire. Now, you see, have you noticed in your Bible that that's an italicized? Did you see that there? Look real closely. You can see that that's italicization. What does that mean? That means it's not in the original language. It was inserted by the translators because of something that the original language is expressing that cannot be expressed otherwise. So it's a helper. Epithomeo means desire, craving, a longing for. Now, in this context... We, we read without the word fervent, with desire, I have desire to eat. Because it's mentioned twice and that it's doubled, that communicates the intensity. If I say something twice or God says something twice, that's usually said because it's important or it needs to be emphasized. You get it? I'm sure you do. And so... This reveals the heart of God. I just want to be with you guys. I love you so much. Do you think about how much God loves you? Do you believe God really, really loves you? And then some of you just thought Are you kidding? How could He love me? I'm a train wreck. I've made so many mistakes. That's why this love that we speak of is foreign to us. It's unconditional. You're loyal to me. I express my loyal love to you. I've already taken care of your dirty diapers. You're going to be mature. You're going to grow. You're going to become all that I intend to be. Not in this life, but in the one to come. I'm just allowing you to suffer so that I can teach you. So that you'll open up to me and trust me. With desire, I have desired to eat this Passover with you. This is the last banquet that Jesus would have with them, this Passover meal. It's not the last one he will ever have. When's the next one coming? We're gonna be with him. Woohoo You can go you can get a little Pentecostal on that one. In the kingdom of God and it's coming like a freight train, and nobody's going to stop it. It says he took the cup. In verse 17, he gave thanks. He said, take this and divide it among yourselves. This is not the communion cup that we're used to here. Those of you who are familiar with the Passover meal, how many cups are there? Very good. Oh, four. That's right. This is probably cup number one. We're just starting the feast you know that could be the second we don't really know. Luke was, is a Gentile. He's not into the, all the Jewish things that go on at the feast, probably. But I'm going to educate you a little bit, and we're gonna, we are planning on doing one this spring. Uh, Ari and, and um, Rob are um, going to help us with that this time around. Lord Willing. Let's just go real quickly through the cups first cup was called the cup of sac- sanctification. Yahweh is setting his people, Israel, apart from the world uh, as his very own nation. And 1 Corinthians 1.30 says, But you are of Christ Jesus, who became for us the wisdom of God and righteousness, sanctification and redemption, that it is written, He who glories, let him glory in the Lord. See, this is what God's all about with you and I. Righteousness, sanctification, and redemption. He is setting us apart. Israel was set apart. That's what the first cup's talking about. We're, we've now set apart this time, this feast, to, rep, to go through the great deliverance that God has brought to us. And the death angel passed over to save us. The second cup is the cup of deliverance. Deliverance out of bondage. It's Romans 6.20. You are, were slaves. You were free in regards to Righteousness. He's delivering his people, Israel, out of bondage. The third cup is the one that we are recognize when Jesus really reinterpreted the Passover for us, is the cup of redemption. Exodus 6 6, the last part of verse 6, it says, I will redeem you with an outstretched arm and with great judgments. Now, I think there's more to that wording than just the metaphorical outstretched arm, which we would take it to mean as he carried Israel as it were on eagle's wings and brought great deliverance to the nation with its outstretched arms. You ever think about that verbiage, that use of that word? Can you think of anything else of that, where God outstretched his arms to bring about great deliverance. Yeah. He doesn't miss. His words have meaning and purpose. We need to meditate upon those so that God can show us what they really mean and the depth of his love for us. The cup of redemption. And the fourth cup, which Jesus is waiting to partake of in the kingdom when he comes... The cup of praise or the cup of acceptance, Galatians three, thirteen and 14 says that Christ has redeemed us from the curse of the law, having become a curse for us, for it is written, Cursed is everyone who hangs on a tree, and that the blessing of Abraham might come upon the Gentiles in Christ Jesus, that we might receive the promise of the Spirit through faith. And yes, the church inherits the new covenant. Doesn't exclude Israel because that's Jeremiah 31, which we can read if you want to. Jeremiah 31 31 through 34 is the new covenant that he would establish. The establishment and the Pharisees, the scribes, those who studied the law should have known and understood what was going on. They didn't want it to change, they didn't want to give that up. Jesus then took the bread took it, held it up, no doubt, gave thanks, broke it, and gave it. This is sort of a pattern in our lives. He takes hold of our hearts, our lives. And no doubt, Jesus thanks the Father for the surrender of your soul and spirit to him. And then he breaks us. Yep, he breaks us down so that we'll shed the flesh. And then it says he gave it. He gave it to them. But in reality, what this is, is Jesus giving himself for us that we might give ourselves to him. He's speaking in a way of what's going to happen to him. He's going to be broken, shattered. Shattered. You see this third cup, it does represent the new covenant. The wine obviously, the his precious blood which he shed for mankind. You know these pictures illustrate powerful truths that as you and I as we get ready here to take communion this morning we're going to take it. For those of you who um, are visiting or whatever, there's two cups, the bread is in the lower cup, so just kind of Slightly twist the top one with the juice to access the the bread. Take the bread and the cup and hold them, and we're going to partake together. Uh, We'll drink the cup and eat the bread together. I want to finish with the last verse here before the guys come to serve us. I just—it just blows my mind, the love of God. The mercy of God. Do you think Jesus knew Judas was pilfering? Do you think he was aware of what, of what was going on in the lives of his disciples? Of course he was. He knew from the very beginning that it would be Judas that would betray him. Now, that would not be the normal reaction that you and I would have, I would imagine. I, I, I'll confess my guilt. No way. There's no way. No. But not God. (laughs) And then when he comes to the garden, you know, whatever you do, you know, do quickly. You know, he leaves, (coughs) Satan enters him. And then he comes in the garden with the mob. Right up to Jesus. The one whom I kiss is the one you take. Betrayed this Judas friend. Betrayed the son of man with a kiss. I understand Peter completely. No doubt. Let's just kill them all. Put it away. I will drink the cup. You know, I've noticed in a lot of lives men of God served the Lord many, many years, and they get to the end, and many of them were alone. All the apostles died alone. Paul was forsaken, died alone. I'm not saying that's going to happen to each and every one of us, but don't be surprised if you are alone. There's one thing that we all do alone, and that is when we cross that river into the eternal It's just you and Jesus. And that's the way he wants it. Ultimately, it will just be you and the Lord. And Jesus was not intimidated by what was coming. He knew that these guys would flee. It would just be him and the Father. And that's the way it works. So as you take and observe this in remembrance of what he did, reflect upon his love, Obviously those outstretched arms and his willingness to take on what we are, sinners. He who knew new sin became the sin offering that we might be made the righteousness of God. It's the greatest exchange ever. I'm going to make a trade with mankind. I'll become that rebellious, sinfulness and I'll take that on myself. I'll pay that debt. And instead of judging them and killing them, which they deserve, I will give them a robe of righteousness. I'll let them be free from their guilt. I will set them free and fill them with my love and grace and we'll share eternity together and they'll never sin again. That's the great exchange. Fellows, would you come? in service.